Welcome to the UC Berkeley Data Science Education Podcast. We're happy you're listening in today. In this space, you'll hear from a variety of distinguished data science educators and professionals. The individuals we'll speak with are diverse in experience and perspective, but share the common goal of shaping the future of data science education. Our idea is to have some informal conversations with the goal of creating community and let people hear from practitioners in this growing new field. My name is Eric Van Dusen from Data Science Undergraduate Studies in the Division of Computing, Data Science, and Society at UC Berkeley, and I'll be leading our conversation today. And my name is Kalechi Nebadam, also from Data Science Undergraduate Studies. I'm working as an intern with the division's external pedagogy team, and I'll be helping out today too. Today we have Carrie Diaz-Eaton with us. Could you give us a brief introduction to yourself and something you're currently working on? Sure. Um, my name is Carrie Diaz-Eaton. I'm at uh, Bates College in Maine. I'm an associate professor of digital and computational studies, which is a sort of interdisciplinary program. Um, and I'm currently on sabbatical. I also have visiting uh, research appointments at two math institutes, one at University of Chicago and the other one at Brown University. So one of the things that I've been working on a lot lately is organizing research programs around data science and social justice. Um, I call it an adult researcher REU. <laughs> so it's kind of like a great space to share ideas uh, along these themes of data science and social justice. It's been very exciting. Nice. Um, I saw that you used the calling bull curriculum. Uh, can you tell us about like how you adapted or like, you know, took that to make your own class? Yeah. So, um, for those who, who don't know about calling bull, uh, calling bull is this, they might know the book that Carl, uh, Bergstrom and Jevin West put out. Uh, but before the book, there was the curriculum, uh, on their website freely available to use and kind of how do we help students navigate the world of big data as it's been increasingly uh, taking over decision making and news propagation. Um, and the, the courses they designed, it was a one credit lecture course, kind of a large scale class for the University of Washington. And I, when I first met Carl and heard him talk about this, I was like this, I, I really want to teach this class. And when I, um, came to Bates because I, I moved here only a few years ago to to start up the digital and computational studies program. They said, I really want to use this course as a vehicle to talk with students, especially in social science fields about computation and uh, and general data literacy. And, uh, you know, my contribution to the sort of quantitative requirement um, could be really, really meaningful rather than, and no offense, I'm a mathematician by degree, no offense to mathematicians, maybe more relevant than calculus or pre-calc for, uh, for most uh, folks going out into the world, being an informed citizen. So um, the difference is, is I, I took their, their curriculum and I, I uh, augmented it. So they have a lot of really nice case studies that they have done a lot of the legwork on, like, hey, let's dispel this, let's look a little bit more into this. Um, but instead of them sort of descriptively talking about various case studies that use data or debunk something, uh, I actually try to build some programming skills for students. Not too much in depth, but 
like very introductory um thinking about things like okay let, let's let's work with data just a little bit let's uh try importing data let's try fitting a regression line and um the case studies that they've pulled out are actually pretty straightforward to implement this uh, you could even probably do it in google spreadsheets but i use r and uh, we try to build a little bit of computational skills alongside of their critical thinking about data and the world and information and where does it come from and how do we vet it both as a citizen as well as uh, or a digital citizen i should say as well as sort of a scientist from a scientist perspective as well um, so now it's become sort of a three credit course instead of just the one credit with a with a data literacy component an introductory uh, programming component um, and uh, i think a really important skill set in uh, critiquing data and thinking about uh, open science as well nice thank you that's that's um it's really exciting you know as we're like evolving curriculum in the space we're also reading that you incorporate interdisciplinary ap approaches like digital narratives, online communication, community approaches into your research in the field. Can you comment on how like, you know, combining sort of like these novel research techniques with traditional data science? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a mathematician. I mentioned that before. That's what my degrees, my primary degrees are, even though my training is interdisciplinary. Uh, you don't really get a lot of qualitative technique training when, when working in, in STEM fields. Primarily, it's, it's usually more quantitative. Um, but I had started moving into STEM education research uh, pretty early into my faculty career. And, and there, the idea of mixed methods is very, very common. So I, I think of this as a version of mixed methods. Mixed methods, meaning qualitative and quantitative research, I, I think make really nice, powerful pairings to tell complicated stories. And so um, some of the work that I have done uh, in terms of some of these qualitative things, these counter narratives or uh, online community organ organizing have been around things that are of a service nature. In other words, I got involved in, in some kind of social justice topic one way or the other, and there was a space to build some community around that. Um, and it didn't have to necessarily be social justice, but I, I think uh, there was a project for, called Math Mamas, for example, that was about sharing stories about being an academic as well as having children and how motherhood is or isn't supported or the challenges thereof. Um, and trying to produce those stories because so many of us were in these uh, departments with very few role models that were senior to us that were successfully navigating those tensions. Um, so that was a case of, okay, there's a community around here to help build and share stories. And qualitatively that sounded just, that just made sense, right? But it's been a little bit more recent to pair that with quantitative techniques outside of education research specifically. Uh, I think one of the more recent examples or one of the, the um, let me rephrase that, <laughs> one of the more 
contemporary examples of this was there was sort of a controversy, I guess you could say, in the in the mathematical community around hiring and diversity statements. And there was a lot of community organizing on either side of, uh, you know, do we how do we want to treat diversity statements and hiring uh, in mathematical fields? And there, that was the digital narrative part. That was the community organizing part, or at least on, on, for, for various sides, whether you're organizing for or against. And then uh, I uh, had a colleague of mine who started uh, doing some uh, quantitative and now turning that qualitative information into quantitative information and doing an analysis of sort of the demographics of the folks that were signing various letters for or against. And I think this is when started these worlds of mine re-collided into, oh, you can actually do mixed methods, not just around your, your education work, but also around this broader community building and social justice work. And, uh, and so that, that, that article was published in PLOS One and, and had, you know, probably uh, results that, that folks might expect that those who are um, in more uh, vulnerable positions and who uh, represented a broader uh, swath of diversity among uh, graduate students and faculty, et cetera, were, were signing letters in favor of diversity statements and those who were in primarily uh, research-oriented elite universities with uh, in dominant uh, race and gender classes were signing the statements against diversity um, statements in hiring. So I, I realized, okay, it's one thing to tell stories and stories are powerful on the, their own when you couple them with the quantitative information, they become an even more uh, uh, powerful storyteller together. And so that's what I've really, really enjoyed about sort of the work that I'm doing now is blending both of those together. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, I would love it if you just, um, you know, elaborate on some of what you just said about sort of combining like social justice work with STEM education, open curriculum, um, you know, which we were reading about at the Rios Institute. Yeah, so uh, thanks for, for that segue because the Rios, the Rios Institute is something I'm really excited about. Um, you know, I had been leading, uh, co-leading uh, some large STEM education projects with some wonderful colleagues. And for those who have led any kind of project, not just STEM education, you know that there's this idea about sustainability. How are we gonna keep this going? And uh, many folks are asked, how are you going to keep it sustainable from the beginning? And that's sort of like, that's really hard, but, but it gets more urgent, you know, approach year four or five, et cetera. And it was at that time where we were starting to get asked a lot of really hard questions about, well, how are you going to fund this great open source initiative? So this the grant I'm specifically talking about was a grant called CUBES, Q-U-B-E-S or CUBES Hub, which was a... a open education resource sharing and community platform for uh, STEM education. And there was a lot of talk about how sustainability plans meant we would have to charge someone to access or submit information. I mean, this is like the journals, journals are, online journals are not free. Somebody has to manage it. Cyber infrastructure is not free as much as people think it is. And it's a hidden cost that if, if everything works really well, they assume it costs nothing because they don't know the, the pain and effort that go into it. Um, and so, uh, you know, we 
we were starting to get really confronted directly about what are our goals in terms of serving everyone or have, giving everyone access or sharing access. And that dovetailed into other really you know, important conversations we were having about what kind of field in data science were we helping to create from a social justice perspective as well. And uh, we gathered this great uh, meeting together um, to talk about these uh, intersectional challenges of, of open and STEM education and social justice. And uh, folks were like, this is a great conversation. We have a lot to learn from each other, especially across the aisle of working with folks who have been doing open from the open education OER side for many years, who are in libraries primarily and, and some other areas with folks working on this from like a STEM perspective who might not be engaged with each other. We had a lot to learn from each other, but uh, we, we needed more support when it came to really thinking about where our center was in terms of social justice. What is our commitment to equity and inclusion? And maybe as project leaders, especially in STEM, had not really been asked that question before. And to, con and to contextualize this, this was pre-2020. So it was pre-pandemic, pre-George Floyd, and we're sitting there going, maybe we should figure out what that center of social justice is for our projects. And it was kind of being in the right place at the right time. Uh, and we continued that work, uh, starting to provide a space and a form of support for project leaders uh, in STEM education, in STEM, um, in OER, who really wanted to explore what their social justice center is and make commitments in their organization and work towards uh, work that would incorporate that into their organizations. So yeah, it, it's been great. Uh, we've, uh, so I, I guess now we're, we're coming up on uh, four years now, uh, first as a, sort of a network and now more formally as uh, Rios Institute in the last uh, couple of years. And uh, it's been really exciting work to engage with a community of educators that really, really want to think about how they can move their organizations forward. Nice, thank you. Um, I have as the next question, uh, this concept that we saw in one of your papers about duo ethnography, sort of this idea of like, we have equity in our data science and then we have different perspectives as, as we come into the data science. Um, can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, so duo ethnography is sort of, duo ethnography is, an approach that makes meaning from multiple perspectives. So one of the things that our group was really thinking about is as we're talking about ethics in data science education, how are we framing that conversation? Whose voices are being heard in that conversation? Because ethics, and I'm sort of using air quotes, but people can't see that, but but ethics is very much formed still by a lot of Western frames that have been dominated by certain folks who are also uh, the same demographics that have been dominating computer science and other kinds of, of uh, high technology STEM areas. And to lift voices or rethink what that conversation could look like, it made sense to use do, do ethnography 
to lift those voices. So I was really fortunate to work with a wonderful group of people. Uh, my colleague at my own institution who comes from this like digital humanities history point of view, Annalisa Shrout, but then also with folks um, in uh, biology, Crystal Sosi, who's been a huge advocate for uh, indigenous data sovereignty in bioinformatics and genomics. Then uh, Belen Sinajini, whose area is in decolonization and math education. Um, and then uh, Nathan Alexander, who's uh, at Morehouse building a data science program, thinking about how do we ground this in, in the stories of uh, our own Black data history, right? And, and so these folks are all coming together thinking about what does it look like to form the field of data science? And we can talk about ethics because it's listed explicitly as like a data acumen. That's the framing that, that it's given. But what are we really asking for? I think we're really asking for humanity in our curriculum. And so hence the title is evolved into through this conversation and this making understanding together, it really evolved into beyond ethics. And what do we wanna see? And I think we all had space with this particular methodology to talk about how we are each thinking about it in our own context, but then come together and say, here are the things we found we had in common with each other that might be a framework for others to draw from. It was really great work. I enjoyed that entire process. Um, and we were excited to, to put it out there. Fortunately, there's a place that, that will publish that kind of work. We have a journal of humanistic mathematics that might not be, and I, I'm sure they accept other submissions from data science broadly, um, because I think we need to also think about what are the outlets for that kind of academic work, because it's not, in the places we might be used to publishing in. That's really exciting to hear. And that paper sounds super interesting. So I'm definitely going to check it out. But you mentioned earlier that you were on sabbatical. So I'd love to hear a bit more about the work you're doing right now at Brown University and at UChicago. Yeah, we're convening these great groups of researchers who really want to do more research that's meaningful for them in social justice with their mathematical or data or computer science backgrounds. So it's a pretty interdisciplinary group of people from both a discipline but a subdiscipline perspective as well. Uh, and in the Brown University program, it's we, we did four weeks of a research program last summer and then we have six weeks upcoming. Uh, we had a number of projects going on, uh, all, all sorts of different projects. And But um, I, I think one that's worth kind of rising to the top because it also uh, incorporates what, what I was doing in Chicago. Uh, one of the things that I did on just before my sabbatical in this uh, pandemic time was dream about what my sabbatical should be or what I wanted it to be. And uh, I'm, I'm actually from uh, the Providence area. And so... I had been thinking a lot about if I want to do some social justice work 
I do want to ground it in a sense of place, but where is that sense of place for me, especially as an academic where you kind of get trained in different geographic areas of the country, you're not always in the same space or place. So where does, where do I want to impact from a social justice perspective? And uh, so I decided to, you know, go back home where I grew up, basically. And home has changed a lot since I grew up there. Um, but I wanted to get back to the Latinx community that I uh, grew up with in Rhode Island. And I was able to, during my time at uh, ISERM, make some community connections between one of the research groups at, at, uh, at Brown and this other community group, the Winnesquatucket River Watershed Council, who runs this program called Nuevas Voces. And Nuevas Voces is a program that is like a leadership support and development program for a, a, a neighborhood along the watershed in downtown Providence that is uh, subject to a lot of flooding. And uh, it's primarily immigrant, primarily uh, uh, non-English speaking slash uh, English as a multilingual speakers uh, community. And the idea of the Nueva Suosis program is to help uh, give access to resources and knowledge about how to advocate for their own communities and uh, empower them to do so. It's been quite successful in getting placements from that uh, group into local Providence councils and things like that. So they, they were talking to us about the some ideas that they had had around identifying resources, identifying data sources, helping make their advocacy work more effective. And we just had a lot of common interests. So we have uh, been keeping in touch with them since uh, we met in Providence and continued our work to win uh, some of that research group and, and new folks joined us at the University of Chicago uh, this past winter um, to work on a geographic information tool that would identify for the community some of the resources and some of the data that they were interested in for their advocacy work. Um, and we actually brought folks from Nuevas Voces and WRWC to the University of Chicago. They, they were very open to, yeah, you want to bring community members? Let's do it, I, which I 100% really appreciate. And um, and we started building something together. And I thought at first we were going to do like, okay, this is going to be like floodplain analysis and things like this. And actually ended up being more than that. We, we talked about what kinds of stories, what was compelling. And, and one of the things is, is that it's really hard to advocate for your environment if you're if you're worried about what your kids are eating at school or if they're getting educated like the day to day, right? So we ended up spending actually a, a lot of time first developing a general resources database for them so that they could have some kind of tool to show people, hey, like here's what, if you are looking for information on housing assistance, if you're looking for information on, um, on lawyers, if you're looking for information, you know, here, here are all the different kinds of resources available to you in Providence. And then uh, we started working on school data and understanding school data. So they have a quasi school choice program. And the form, one of our, our, co our fo colleagues from Nuevas Voces was there with the form trying to fill this out for one of the new immigrant families she was trying to support. 
And it was very complicated. Where do you go for this information about which school is going to be the best fit for your student? It was all over the place. There was too much data in some places and not enough data in other places. And it, it was nothing was meaningful about the data that was being shared. And so transforming that into useful information, maybe looking at test outcomes disaggregated by English language learners and not, and all of a sudden this became a project we weren't building because we wanted to build something that was a cool GIS tool. It became something about these are the urgent questions that the community needs help analyzing um, how can we help them so that they can do everything they need to do for their community um, being a good neighbor. So that that was really exciting work. I, <laughs> I was on uh, the Math Institute at Chicago has a podcast also called Carry the Two, and we did uh, an entire podcast uh, on that project, um, as well as they did an, another podcast on another project that was also community-based. So I would also direct listeners there too, because um, you get to hear it from all of the voices of the folks involved in the program, uh, not just the researchers, but also the community members. And I think it's a really powerful thing to hear. Yeah, that's really amazing work that you're doing. And you were mentioning, obviously, that you wanted to do a project that gave back to your community. And you yourself are a first generation Latinx. Um, and I'd love to know if that has influenced your research or your teaching in any way. Well, for sure. <laughs> so obviously, the example that I just gave 100% influenced by my identity and my sense of place. Um, but other things as well, the first two ethnography that I ever did uh, was, I, I mentioned the Math Moms Project earlier in, in the interview, um, was for a, a special issue, that digital issue that we put out with Math Mamas. And it was about uh, my own great aunt who was a math teacher in Peru. And I worked with my cousin on this. Uh, and my cousin knew that uh, her grandmother a lot better than I, I had never met her, but her grandmother lived with her for many years. So, and she's also a math teacher. So there have been a lot of places where I think some of that identity has been separate from my work or separated maybe intentionally by kind of how we think about the role of historically, how we have thought about the role of identity and just doing the math or just doing the computer science. Um, but I think it's projects like this who that have given me the space to really reintegrate identity and who I am as a mathematician or an educator back together. And I think they've been absolutely fundamental in centering who I am and what I want to do moving forward. And I think I could not do the work I'm doing today without that centering uh, and other kinds of projects early on. Um, the in addition, I think it has affected who my community of support is too. So I've been pretty active in, for example, SACNAS um, and would, I'm a big fan of, of, of engaging communities um, of support uh, because I have been living in predominantly white areas that don't have a lot of uh, a community of folks who have exactly the same shared identities as me. And so it's been a lot for me uh, a lot of the work that I've done in online community engagement and organizing has been specifically because I myself was trying to reach out for those networks of support. Um, and of course, now there that kind of 
grounding of who I am and what I've done naturally has extended into, uh, you know, quantitative hashtag analysis of Twitter communities, right? And so, you know, it's a natural extension, um, but I love that they're starting to integrate back together again after so many years. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like it's amazing that we've slowly been able to integrate you know, our own identities and our own personal experiences and perspectives perspectives with, you know, the quantitative to create amazing projects like the one you're doing right now. Um, and I'd love to know if you have any tips for students that are studying in STEM and trying to get involved in research. Yeah, so I think uh, one of the big things that I have said, sometimes students not so much the undergraduate students, but a lot of times I actually do quite a bit of discussion with graduate students or postdocs. Maybe it's because of the research programs I'm organizing or just because somebody connects me with somebody else. But, you know, a lot of them, when they know about my work, they're like, well, how did you prepare yourself to do this work? And it, I was like, I think mostly it was kind of by accident. I, I stumbled into it and it looks really intentional now, but it was a collection of skills that I amassed over time that brought me to a place where uh, I can do the, the, the things that I, I like to do. But I think 100% I, I, I followed what I was really interested in and followed my heart in that direction. Along the way, I definitely, you know, took some opportunities that came up to learn new skills. And I think that has to be balanced also with like just doing what you love. But, you know, how are you thinking about yourself as a unique individual? What makes you, yourself marketable? What do you like to do? What do you enjoy to do? And what kind of skills can you develop fearlessly to, to, to maybe build into that work? And you don't have to know where it's going at the end, but I do feel like when I started, I, I did not start as a computational or math major. I started as a biology major because I loved the questions in biology and I, and I wanted to save the world in a more conservation oriented way. Um, I followed math because I liked taking the courses and I liked doing the methods of math. I realized I didn't want to be in the field. I wanted to be a dry biologist and not a wet biologist. And so uh, I, I didn't know that math biology was a field that was going to explode 25, 30 years ago, I just knew that I really liked the questions in biology and thought, oh, I think there's some math in here <laughs> and just kept asking a lot of questions. Um, and that put me in a really great place. I um, listened to my colleagues when I was teaching uh, mathematics for, for biology and they were saying, oh, I really need to teach my my students data skills. I really need to teach them R. I really need to teach them programming. And, uh, and I started learning about it and I started adding it to my classes. And then it put me in a really good position to, you know, think about sort of data science as, as this open field. So I think sometimes we're, we're told we can't have it all. We can't do the things we love and, the, and have a, a fruitful career. But I would say that's what I love being at a liberal arts school is you can do both. You should give your time to enjoy and do both um, and, and pick up skills along the way. Don't be afraid to challenge yourself and, um, and ask a lot of questions to a lot of folks about what are the opportunities to engage. I love that. Amazing piece of advice. 
Um, and to close out this interview, I just wanted to know if you had any parting thoughts or words of wisdom for data science educators around the world. Yeah, I, I'm going to have a parting thought that's not exclusively mine, but rather one that I'm going to share on behalf of, of Rios Institute, because one of the questions we've been really asking ourselves is, is for whom is it open? So I think as folks going into data science, we, we definitely are committed to open practices as much as possible from a, a data perspective, from a reproducible methods perspective, all, all sorts of perspectives. But I don't know that it's enough to be just open from a licensing perspective. I think we have to think about who is represented, how are they represented, I, a great example that Crystal Social always brings up is the idea that there's open data sets on NIH databases that are freely available but are exploitive to indigenous populations because that data is collected and shared without permission. And from a curricular perspective, you can have all the open curriculum you want, but if it is showing marginalized viewpoints of people of color in your class, who is that really empowering? So I think I want us to invest in open that's investing more broadly in our future. And so I, I would love for everyone to sort of think about, is it good enough to just be open, but open for whom and who are we centering in that future? Awesome, thank you for that, very inspiring. Yes, that was an amazing piece of advice. Thank you so much and thank you for coming on. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me, it's been a pleasure. Uh, and I am, hope that I can, um, send more people in the direction to, to think in these thoughts and, you know, feel free to follow up if you have any other questions and that goes for the audience as well. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you're interested in learning more about data science education resources, Please subscribe to our Substack to get notified when we release any future podcasts. And join our community Slack channel through the link provided in this episode's description. Thank you.